This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. I love how Tapcart's mobile app allows merchants to grow revenue, optimize marketing spend, and increase customer lifetime value. One feature I love about Tapcart is the ability to drag and drop. As somebody who knows nothing about how to code or where to even start if I wanted to start coding, Tapcart's drag and drop builder just makes it so easy to build a mobile app. Tapcart created an exclusive two-month free offer, especially for our listeners. Go to tapcart.com slash limited. Again, that's tapcart.com forward slash limited. All right. First episode. Here we go. Let's go. Twitter was pretty excited when we announced this. Yeah, Twitter was really excited. I couldn't believe, you know what sucks is like, I keep looking at how many likes your post gets versus my post gets, because I have like three times the followers you do. Yeah. And you get more likes. Why is that? I don't know. I'm like, is my audience getting too saturated? You know, it's probably, I think I was the person who announced it, so it probably just gets a little bit more attention. Sure. I was like the original tweet. Uh, Yeah, the algorithm favors you. Yeah. Uh, but I'm really excited about doing this. And after that, Same. after putting it on Twitter, I got even more excited. Like there's some things where I'm like, nobody cares about this. I'm going to stop. Yeah. This was one of those things where I was like, okay, we got to do this. Yeah. When you announced it, I was in Austin and you know, the people around me were like, oh, I didn't realize you were doing this. You didn't mention anything. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, it's just, it's whatever. Yeah. We're just doing a podcast. Yeah. Like, that's right. Well, me and Moise talk all the time. Yeah. That's right. And they're like, no, that's a big deal. You got to tell us when you're doing something like this. Yeah. Yeah, but, we have to make it a big deal, I think. Like, we right. have to make it really good so that uh, we want to do it and that other people really love it. Like, the engagement exactly. on Twitter really make, gets me excited because I'm right. like, oh, people care yeah, people and want to hear about this. Exactly. Yeah. Even now, I just tweeted out, you know, like, I'm about to go talk with Moyes. Drop a bunch of things you want us to talk about. And we got a good amount of stuff here. Okay, fantastic. Um, but so, let's start with why we're doing this. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people would... Not be like, you know, I, I think the reason that I want to do this or I got excited about it was because we would go to all these workout classes and then we would jam about direct to consumer stuff for a couple hours. And then I'd be like, okay, I need to go home and start working right now. And it would just be like great because it was unadulterated and it was from someone who knows what's going on in the community, which is you. And someone who was like, okay, I understand when people are just giving me bullshit yeah. and when people are giving me like honest and valuable information. And so I thought that was super valuable. Like whenever I, whenever we had that conversation or every conversation we had, I'd be like, let me go home and work right now because I'm super jazzed up about e-commerce. I'm like, you know, I just got a bunch of knowledge bombs that I need to go put to use. A lot of times when I talk to people about e-commerce, you know, you can easily tell when somebody's trying to PR filter what they talk about. Yeah. And I think one of the things I love, like texting you, like, hey, let's go work out, is because I just know for, you know, two hours after our workout, I'm just going to get to suck all the information out of you, too. Yeah. And, uh, so and it's all like real stuff, yeah. you know? And it's, uh, yeah, it's just super valuable. And just the fact that you're you're such a an advocate for bootstrapping, is yeah. like the other thing that resonates with me a lot because yeah. I'm Indian too, so I'm cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, it's not in our blood to go just raise a bunch of money to do something. It's like, let's put in the work and figure it out and then see if there's that opportunity. Bootstrapping is great. You can have small outcomes that are really meaningful. Right. Like my outcome was relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but incredibly meaningful for me. Yeah. And I think it really started back in like 2016, 17, 18. I'm sure it started before that actually, and I just didn't hear about it. But when we sold and then Movement Watches sold and Tuft & Needle sold, uh, like all three of those businesses had sort of, 
been bootstrapped, grew, were nine figure businesses. Like I think Movement Watches sold for a hundred million as well. Yeah. Tough to needle was to a private equity firm and it was less clear, but it was certainly going to be nine figures. Yep. And uh, that was a ton of fun. And like a ton of like people were like, okay, you know what? This exit strategy or this path for e-commerce makes a ton of sense. In the same way that Andy Dunn had paved the way for digitally native vertical brands and sort of said, hey, this is how you build a brand. Amazon is going to capture the world. You cannot sell a third-party product and make a meaningful business uh, with maybe the exception of Chewy. I think he's been right. Right. You know, he paved the way of being like, hey, create your own brand. And so did Casper and Warby Parker and Harry's all before us. And they were like, this is how you make your own brand. And then by the time uh, I started Native and I think Movement or maybe uh, Tuft and Needle, we were all like, oh, okay, all of these tools that took a lot of money to make are now available for free. Shopify exists. Like, I think you were mentioning like the Warby Parker guys or somebody was telling me recently, the Warby Parker guys were like, we wish we had built Shopify instead of Warby Parker. Like we built all of the tools to have an easy to use direct to consumer business. And, uh, you know, we built the business instead of the software behind it. And the software behind it seems like it's worth a lot more. I think by the time I started, the software was out there and it was really easy to use and it was a lot easier to bootstrap. Yeah, I mean, even just thinking like, from five years ago, when when I was at Hint, we were manually pulling reports daily. Yeah. Of like, all right, what was our revenue? What was our you know number of new customers versus existing? And now that's just all. It's just all there. It's all free and it's all available. Yeah. What was the software you guys built Hint on? Was it on Shopify? Uh, so Shopify is what I was able to get us transitioned to. Yeah. Initially, it was on Symphony Commerce, which was okay. the idea yeah. was like it's an online platform and a three PL. The problem was like, if we wanted to change the color of the add to cart button, you had to submit a ticket to their customer service team, and then they would route it to the product team who would route it to developers, and then it would take the same amount of time for the information to come back. It was a horrible experience. Yeah. You know, and and with Shopify, obviously, you just one click. And you're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, wow. Hint is still on Shopify. Uh, I, yeah. I was friends with the team at Ali, multi, like uh, the gummy vitamins. And, and, you know, their business was primarily brick and mortar. And when I was starting Native, I was like, what software do you guys use? And they're like, we use one by our 3PL. It's built by our 3PL. They're like, you should use it. I was like, that sounds like a terrible, terrible yeah. idea. Like, first, you can never leave that 3PL. Right. There's it, no alcohol. Your whole website is like, you know, dependent on that company. Yeah. And so I'm glad that was a smart move for you to transition. There was all. only one other company that did it. And it was actually surprisingly a Pepsi company called Drinkfinity. They didn't last. Yeah. Um, they're one of those like, you know, flavor pouches you pop in the bottle and it looks like it just pees yeah. right in yeah, yeah. with flavor. That makes sense for Pepsi. Cause like the only way to change a color at Pepsi is probably to submit a ticket. Like right. that's the only thing, like there's not a guy who's like, you know what? I think we should change this color. Let's do it right now. He's probably like, we should submit this ticket. Yeah, exactly. Let me go get approval real quick. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so before we get too far into the podcast, I think it might make sense since this is our first episode to talk about who we are. Yeah. Because there's at one point, like, you know, I'm not sure who's going to listen to this podcast. It might be just be the people who follow us or like, you know, the DDC community who knows who we are. And, you know, there may be one new listener once. uh, Sure. So why don't you start by telling a little bit about, you know, Nick Sharma, Sharma Brands, Hint, all that kind of stuff. We should do this. And then we should give like one or two sentences on each other for all the stuff we left. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I'm Nick. I always start by saying I'm Nick and I'm Indian. uh, (laughs) So I'm Nick and I'm Indian. And, um, you know, I kind of got started in this world of marketing when I was much younger Back in high school, I started doing social media management for a few different celebrities. 
which actually comes back full circle, which I'll get to in a second. I did that for a couple years. Uh, didn't really get the best grades in high school. Ended up joining an ad tech company in San Francisco. Spent a couple years there. Learned all about ad arbitrage. Like, how are we getting those guys at the bottom of the articles on the Taboola yeah. feeds? How are we getting them on Facebook? And how are we getting them even cheaper cost per clicks? So did a bunch of that. And then I joined a company called Hint Water, which is a flavored water company which you happen to be an investor in. That's right. And uh, spent two years there, built out the e-commerce and digital side of that business. Then I came to New York, joined an agency called VaynerMedia for two and a half months, realized that the agency life was not one I wanted to live. And then I started consulting here and there. So everything from you know a beverage brand like Lemon Perfect all the way to then Chacha Matcha, and then it just started getting bigger and bigger. Pill Club, Rock Nation, and, you know, eventually that kind of snowballed into what Sharma Brands is today, where we just consult with different companies. We either help launch them, like we just launched Feastables by Mr. Yeah. Beast and Give Beauty by Gwen Stefani, all the way to companies like Crocs, Bacardi, uh, Beam Suntory, and then everything in between, you know, the Pill Club, Solar Wave. And so is most of your time spent um, helping companies just determine like their tech stack and building out their site, or is most of it spent you know, looking at ads or is most of it like where, or is most of it spent doing CRO, like between those three buckets and possibly yeah. a fourth bucket, what percentage of Sharma brands does each, I guess, like, you know, it's 25% of it building out websites, 25% CRO. What does it look like? We take this approach, which is like, you know, so we only work with five brands at a time. What that allows us to do is like create insanely custom scopes, you could say for each client. So for example, a client comes to us and says, we are spending 20 grand a day on Facebook. We need to get to 50 grand a day without losing efficiency. That's our end goal is, is efficient spending at 50 grand. And then that will then waterfall into a handful of things. CRO is definitely a huge part of it. Building out landing pages, testing different merchandising and price points and messaging, developing new styles of ad creative. You know, sometimes that'll even mean like, we'll come to the table and say, hey, we think we should be putting out advertorials or whitelisted influencer content, running media behind it. And so we'll take care of all of that. The idea is like we put together this whole kind of playbook and then everything that we present is something we can do. So if that means, for example, uh, you know, with Feastables, one of the things was we want to be able to get reviews in really fast because we know the power of having so many reviews. So that then waterfalled into, all right, so we need reviews fast. Let's go get a reviews platform that is doing betas and alphas with SMS companies because we know that this Gen Z consumer, it's rare that they're going to open their email and click something. But if we can text them and say, hey, send us a review and they can reply and that becomes a review, we can get that review pretty fast. Wow. So we've got the review platform and we know we need an SMS platform. And then everything also has to be on brand. So the review platform, you know, we'll go find a platform. In this case, it was Okendo. And then we'll go, we'll go and negotiate on the client's behalf. So we're not getting market rates. We're going in and, and getting better rates. And then same thing for SMS. We use Postscript. So we went in, we negotiated with their team. And then even a step further to make it on brand, you know, for Mr. Beast, we got the phone number 69420 because that's on yeah. brand for him. You know, and then implementing all that and putting it together so that it actually ships at the end. And so like, that's like one of the little pieces of that big scope that we pulled off for Feastables. Okay, so you said you work with five brands at a time. What are the yeah. five brands right now? Oh, I don't know if we, we can, we can talk about all of them. Okay, uh, talk, you know, what are two of them? Sure, we'll say uh, Feastables is one of them. 
we'll say a hundred thieves is another one. A hundred thieves. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Have you heard of a hundred thieves? No. So a hundred thieves is like, you know, there's this whole industry of esports. Yeah. And gaming. Yeah. Um, they're basically the biggest company there. Okay, so it's not this clothing company that's called Hundred Thieves. Oh, Actually, yeah, that is. probably okay, is. Yeah, because yeah, 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 that's gotcha. their merch that they sell. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So Sharma Brands is one big part of my day. The second one, we have this branded content studio called 1180. And 1180, it's actually the penal code for speeding in New York. So the idea is like, we're fast and uh, we'll acquire customers a lot faster than you. I love it. Um, so with that, we create a bunch of branded content, written and creator content. And yeah. We run all the ads and the idea is like, we can just acquire customers more efficiently than you can. You know who was doing that for a while is um, The Fascination. It was those- very similar to The Fascination. Gotcha. Different in the sense that, so like The Fascination would create content and put it up. And that, that's pretty much the end of that engagement. You can pay the fascination to license their Facebook page and Instagram page to run the ads. Got it. With us, it's like, you know, Milk Bar comes to us and says, hey, this is our current CPA internally. And this is what we have coming up in terms of launches or what we want to promote. Yeah. And also, this is our goal CPA. So I'm just making up numbers here. Let's say our internal CPA is uh, $25. Our goal CPA Goal CPA means like if we hit that CPA, it's we've got an Amex black card. We're spending as much money as we possibly can. Yeah. You know, our goal CPA is $20. And so we are now incentivized to create as much content as we need to to hit that goal CPA and then just basically scale. Yeah. So that's what's awesome about 1180. The third one is one I just started a couple of weeks ago, which I think was like heavily inspired by you and also just listening to the My First Million podcast because yeah. everything is all about bootstrapping. And that, that's a business called Hooks, which is just like, we just make landing pages as a service. Got it. And so, you know, with Sharma Brands, one of the biggest asks we always get is, hey, I have this product launch coming up, or we're running this sale, or Black Friday's coming up. Can you build us a landing page for this? And we were doing them one-off for some of my portfolio companies, but it, it was just taking away from the core business. And so I just thought, all right, I'm going to pump this in my newsletter once and tell people to fill out a form yeah. if they would do this. We got a ton of signups, and then that was enough validation for me to launch. Are you using your own so- custom software to build landing pages, or are you using like no? Unbounce so we use Unbounce. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and the idea is that you know if you go to most landing page vendors today, yeah, they're all building on custom code, which yeah. is great because you can get super custom. Yeah, but the problem it just is like forever. you yeah. can't edit it as yeah, a marketer, yeah. and again, it's like you have to submit a ticket for sure. And then, uh, what's the biggest win you've had recently uh, building landing pages? Like, what were like you know for Feastables because you talked about that brand or Hundred Thieves, yeah, or another brand that you can talk about? Uh, did you build a landing page and you're like, wow, this really worked? One of our OG wins on the landers is actually with Caraway. Okay, and with them, we were able to drop CPA by thirty percent. Okay, and what was the win? Uh, the win was just better conversion. Like, did, did, but was it like an entire redesign or were you like, you know what? We moved oh, no. So this top. is what we did. Yeah. So we, so we did a couple things. One is we just, we just looked at all of the customer service inquiries and all the Facebook comments and yeah. just said, all right, what are people asking about? Yeah. We made a list of everything people ask about. And then we laid that out in the page. The other difference is like with the landers we make, we make them look like they're not product pages. We make them look like they're microsites. 
the idea is that somebody comes to this page thinking they've just gotten to the homepage, but it just takes one scroll till you're at the end. And by the time you're at the end, you're pretty much convinced. Yeah. So a lot of it was driven by social proof, especially because the price point is high. What were a couple of the things that you found that they didn't have? So you said like, um, you looked at their customer service uh, tickets and their Facebook messages. What were the things that you're, they're like, okay, you need to emphasize these two things. Well, there's two things. One was just the fact that like you, if you go to their site today, you have yeah. to click around yeah. to get to the product page okay, and like gotcha. to get to the information. So the biggest win was just putting everything there Got it. so that uh, you don't have to click around. Yeah. Okay. Have I told you about the Kim Kardashian saying that I have? No. So I always like to say like your potential customer is Kim Kardashian walking the red carpet. You as the merchant are the assistant to Kim on the red carpet. And if she has to go anywhere to get information at that time, you're not doing you've it. You're already fired. lost. Yeah, <laughs> you're done. So that's how we treat it. Now, one thing I will say that we do, which I think everybody should do, is so a lot of times the first thing we ask for is, all right, where can we go find your reviews? And so Caraway, for example, has you know tens of thousands of reviews. And so what we'll do is we'll spend an hour we'll read through all the reviews and we'll make a list on the right side with tallies. So uh, if somebody says, I love the way these look on my countertop, yeah, uh, we put, you know, aesthetics. And yeah. Put, put yeah, yeah, tally. I'm with you. And then we'll reverse the page to say, all right, we're going to start at the top, focusing on whatever gets the most and then, you know, slowly work our way down. Yeah, uh, that makes a ton of sense. You're just saying, okay, what do customers care about the most? Or exactly. Where, where's the biggest end when it comes yeah. to complaints? Yeah. Okay, Awesome. And when did you start Sharma Brands? When or why? When, when. Uh, no, I know why. January, <laughs> January 2020. January 2020. Wow. So two so and a half years old. A bit over two years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's bananas. Yeah. I thought, you know, I just feel like you've been associated with it for 50 years now. Yeah. So I'm like, I assumed you started it at the turn of the century. Yeah. Uh, the last century, actually. Right. Uh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So let me tell, like, I'm supposed to say one sentence about you. Yeah, one um, or two sentences. You and I met in Vegas at Shop Talk when uh, we were, when you were still at Vanner Media, mm-hmm. and I thought it was ridiculous that you were working there. And I remember us meeting, like, you know, after we met, I was like, hey, let's chat for five minutes by ourselves. Yeah. And I was like, you need to leave. And you're like, I'm already leaving. And I was like, this guy knows what he's doing already. Because <laughs> I was like, that was a, it was a ridiculous pitch that I heard from Vanner Media. And I was like, um, like I remember someone telling me Gary V turned down a $500 million to sit on the board of a company. And I was like, uh, some, when someone said that to me and I was like, I don't think you know what $500 million is. Like, you know, Barack Obama is not getting $500 million. Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump could join a board and nobody would pay him $500 right. million. Like the CEO of P&G gets paid 18 million a year. Right. Not 500 million a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was like, uh, this is an insane amount. Like Tim, you're talking about Tim Cook level money. Right. And and um, that was when I was like, okay, I'm not sure what people are thinking about at uh, VaynerMedia. And uh, we had that conversation and you're like, yeah, this is, uh, I'm, a, I'm on my way out. And so yeah. I was like, okay, good. You know, I've talked to Gary Vee. I think he's great. And I think he's much more realistic about life than some of the people, some of his disciples. Yeah. And so I appreciate that. I just thought that there was a lot of blind faith going on in that organization when I heard that. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh, I'll tell you who I was. I was a lawyer. Mine's much shorter. I was a lawyer, lawyer for two and a half years. Uh, I quit. I started an e-commerce business back in, in the flash sales uh, space back when that was a thing in 2012. We sold it to a family office in 2013. It was 18 months later. Uh, the family office owned like Books A Million and TNT Fireworks and some random businesses. Uh, we were probably at a five million run rate. We sold the business for seven million in November of 2013. Uh, it was bootstrapped.
bootstrapped as well. Uh, I moved out to California, started Native, raised about $500,000 over the course of uh, Native's life. And we so you know we sold the business for 100 million to PNG. I stayed on for about two more years after we sold the business. Left at the beginning of COVID and sort of been doing nothing since then. We weren't entirely bootstrapped. We'd raised 500 thousand dollars. I'm not sure if I've told you this story. Our first investor was this Chinese guy named Wei Go. Have I told you this story? I think so. When he he has his baby and yeah yeah, yeah. it's such a good story. It's a good story. Though. Yeah, tell it, I'm right. gonna tell it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know I texted him right when we were selling the business. He was a great investor. He was like, I'd see him once every six Did months. Did he put all 500 in? No, he put in 50,000. Okay. 50, he was the first check, 50,000 at a $5 million valuation. So and how, how, like, how, how soon after you started the business was it? Probably three months after. Okay. And he was like, this is a high, he's like, this business is nothing right now. And I was like, yeah, it's nothing, but give me some time. I think we've got, and you know, I remember pitching to him. I pitched to him and within 30 seconds of me opening my mouth, he was looking at his phone and he was also like pretty Chinese national in that he didn't speak English really well. So I'm not yeah. sure he understood a lot of what I was saying. But, uh, you know, I finished my pitch probably in 15 minutes. He listened to a minute and a half of it. And he's like, I'm in. I'm either going to write a 50 or $100,000 check. Let me decide and I'll get back to you. And I was like, okay, great. And, uh, you know, a week later, like some of these things, some guys never write checks. They just say that and they right. won't write their check. I was like a $5 million valuation. He's like, this is a high valuation. And what were you doing in revenue then? God, probably like 20K a month, maybe okay. 10K, like some of like, you know, less than 100K, less than 50K probably. In fact, less than 50K for sure. And he's like, well, this is a high valuation, but I'm in for 50,000 because I said I was. So he wired me the, I had to go create a bank account for the business actually, because at the time I was using my own personal yeah. bank account. Like Stripe was depositing money into my own personal bank account. I was like, okay, now that we're taking outside money, we actually need a bank account. So I created one. <laughs> he wired it in there. This was November, 2015. Two years later, we sold the business less than two years later because I think he wired November 15th. We sold like November 7th. Um, wow. November 6th, I text him in the morning and I'm like, hey, Way, I need to chat with you over the phone. Can we uh, chat right now? And he's like, is this an emergency? And I was like, yeah, it's pretty urgent. I got to tell you what's going on and I need you to sign documents. So he's like, give me a call. I called him up and I was like, hey, uh, we're selling the business to PNG. It's 100 million. You put in 50, you know, you're going to get about a million dollars. And you know, he's like, fuck, fuck, fuck. All he would say, I was like, we're selling the business to PNG. He's like, fuck. And I'm like, you put in 50,000 at $5 million valuation, we're 20 xing it. He's like, fuck. And I'm like, you're going to get a million dollars. Like, fuck. And I was like, uh, I need you to sign documents. And he's like, I asked you if this was urgent because my wife just gave birth to my first son. Oh. Uh, but he's like, this is the best news I've heard all day, though. The, sale, <laughs> the money he's getting is the best news I've heard all day. And I was like, I love this guy so much. He's such a fantastic. Did he name his being. baby Native? No, he didn't. He you know, I remember t I, I went on, I, you know, uh, we were on a panel together a yeah. while later and I was like, do you remember this story? And he's like, yeah, I remember it. And he's like, that was the right thing. I was still, I still agree that that was the best thing that happened to me that day. I love him so much. That's amazing. Uh, he was a great guy. When did you raise the rest of the 450? Yeah. So we raised uh 50,000 from him to the next 250,000 <laughs> we raised from Azure Capital. So the same guy that introduced me to Way introduced yeah. me to Azure. His name's Mark. And so Azure, I talked to in like December and they're like, no, get the fuck out of here. In January, I talked to them. And they're like, go fuck yourself. In February, I talked to them. They're like, get the hell out of here. I just update them every month. And I'm like, here's my new number. Yeah, here's my revenue like, numbers. The fuck up. And they're like, don't email us all the time. <laughs> yeah. Actually, they weren't like that. They're were like, just keep emailing us with your numbers. Yeah. And so it went from like 50 to a hundred thousand. 
And then in April, they were like, okay, let's have another meeting because something is working here. And I met with them. They're like, okay, we're like, you know, they had a photo of like the deodorant aisle at Whole Foods. And they're like, how are you going to compete with this? And I was like, I don't know. You're like like Whole Foods. <laughs> I was like, I have no idea. We're just selling online. I don't ever think about these other guys. Yeah. And so who knows? And uh, there was another guy, like, you know, before I walked into the jet, like the partner meeting where there's like three or four partners uh, asking you questions, I'd sort of already got one guy to buy into it. Uh, you walk into the other partner meeting and there's other partners, uh, uh, the general partner meeting. And um, I researched a couple of the other partners and one guy was like, you know, he had this spiel about Amazon. Like he had written an article and I read it and I walked into the meeting. At the end of my speech, I basically regurgitated the spiel that he had given. And he's yeah. like, this guy is so smart. Genius. Yeah, he's so, I couldn't believe, he's like, this guy is so smart. And I was like, thank you. Uh, and they're like, okay, great. We're going to write the check. And I was like, I just read something you wrote and yeah. just uh, spit it back out right. to you. And they're like, this guy's really uh, smart. We got to give him the money. Anyway, they wrote 250,000. So that now, was What was the purpose of the capital, by the way? You know, I- and how uh, much did you yeah. start with? Because you sold for 7 million. If we you had a partner, yeah, we you sold get for half seven million. Yeah, I got half that. Okay. We, I, got half. Of, How much yeah. did you put in a native? Probably like fifteen hundred bucks. Oh, very, wow. so very like little nothing. amount of money. Yeah. Okay. Almost nothing. Uh, and like, you know, we, the first 50,000, you know, we might've needed, I don't really remember the 250. We definitely didn't. Cause okay. at that point we were making money, you know, we were doing six they figures a month. In they want to be in it. And to be honest, I was in San Francisco and I was like, winning means that you raise money. Sure. And so I was like, I'm yeah, going to get a TechCrunch article. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get a TechCrunch article. And that's how I know I'm successful. And I'm going to get invited to all these cool parties and everyone's going to pat me on the back and I'm going to get a bunch of merch that says native on it. Yeah. And I'm going to send it out to people. Like and your like, backpack here. Yeah, like my backpack yeah. here. Yeah. And that's, that's how I know I'm a real business. Yeah. And so- we raised this 250K and we didn't like really use it and we didn't get a TechCrunch article. Yep. Nobody knew we existed. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess we're going to go back to work. Yeah. And then we were like, you know, growing. So, you know, in January 2016, we did 100,000 in revenue. By April, we did 130, 140. By June, we were doing about 250 a month with probably 10% margin. So 25, 30,000 in profit a month, maybe even a little bit more. And by November, we did a million dollars a month. Wow. And so now, you know, we're doing a million dollars a month and generating 100,000 in EBITDA a month. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of real money. Like, you know, my bank account, like this, I'm making 1.2 million a year. I'm 29 years. I'm like, no, I'm probably like 32 years old. And I'm like, this is pretty good. Yeah. Then I start talking to like people who I think can be helpful. I raised 25,000 from this guy named Jeff Hollander, who is the CEO of Seventh Generation. I raised 25,000 from the CEO of Thrive Market. His name's Nick Green. So that's another 50,000. And then the, I raised 25,000 from these guys who were partners at Encore Capital. Their fund tried to invest. And I was like, look, I don't want this much capital on the balance sheet, but I really like the partners. One guy was named Kevin Murphy. And so he's like, can I invest? And I was like, yeah. He's like, me and my friend are going to invest. We're each going to write $12,500 checks. And this was it's amazing. Uh, this was like late in the game too. And then- yeah, What um, was your valuation there? Oh, it was pretty high, like 30, 40 million. Okay. Like, you know, it was $25,000. I was like, you know, if it's 30 million or 40 million, it's not going to kill me. Um, yeah. And then we raised 150,000 from this guy named David Marcus, or maybe it was 100,000, who was the head of Facebook Messenger. Smart. And I was like, that was your guy then. That was my guy. And Ad in reality, getting banned. Yeah. In yeah. in reality, that really never happened. Yeah. Uh, although I was like, I thought about it that way. Right. And you know what I love about guys like him? 
they think so big. And like when we were selling the business as like, you know, we're going to give you 300 or 400,000. He's like, this, he's like, boys, this can be the next PNG. Like, you know, you don't need to sell here. You're thinking you're going to get a hundred million dollars. You could get, you know, $10 billion. Yeah. And looking back on it and also with the capital in my pocket and feeling a lot safer financially, I'm like, that guy was right. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't think that way. And same with Azure Capital. When we were selling, they're like, you should call up the guy at P&G and be like, don't sell for, we're not going to take a hundred. We need 125 now. Yeah. And I was too big of a pussy to do that. Damn. And he was right. Yeah. Uh, like all of these guys were right. And it's hard when you're in my shoes. Cause you know, I was 32, 33 when we sold the business you know, I had some money, I had a, uh, you know, a million or two in the bank, but my business was worth a lot of money. Right. And I was probably like a 93% shareholder. Yeah. We had 10 or 12 or $15 million in cash and inventory and assets. Like that was going to pay off all of the investors, the banker, the lawyer, all that kind of stuff. Right. So I was going to walk home with close to a hundred million bucks on closing day. Right. Um, and so I was like, that's so much money and such a life-changing amount of money. Yeah. I like cannot say no to that. Yeah. And I still feel that way. Like, go, you know, putting myself back in my shoes at the time, yeah, I'm like, still I made do the right it. decision. Yeah. But looking at it today in the shoes that I have now. Sure, yeah. Grass is always green. Yeah, the grass is always greener. Yeah. You're right. And so that's sort of the way it went. Um, that's who we raised money from, the, the path we raised money from. And the guys who were most helpful were probably the Azure Capital guys and Nick at Thrive Market. And, and you know, David was great because he's, he just knows everybody. And um, he introduced me to another guy whose fund I invested in, Mickey Ribbit at Ribbit Capital. And, you know, Mickey's great. David's great. But Paul from Azure and Nick at Thrive, like I would call them up when I had problems. And the best part was they would never uh, call me up. They were like, you do your own thing. Yeah. And when I called them up, they're like, where's the business today? And then they're like, okay, what's the problem? And when I had a problem, they never made me feel like I caused it. They weren't like, why did you do this? Why did you do right. this? Why did you do this? They're like, we're in it together. How do we solve this? Yeah. And that was an incredible feeling. Like they made it, this sounds ridiculous because it feels like it's a, they're my girlfriend or we're like in a, you know, significant other relationship, but they made it a safe space to talk about problems. Right. And I feel like a bunch of investors don't, including a bunch of investors that I talk, like, you know, I'm on the board of a few, uh, businesses. And I'm like, this board is not a safe sp space for the CEO to come talk about problems. I would hate to be the CEO here. Yeah. And these guys didn't do that. And that was really fantastic. And whenever I like am an investor in a business, I want to make it a safe space. Totally. But yeah, so the business have invested in a bunch of businesses. You and I invested a couple together, Okendo, Postscript. Mm -hmm. um, God, is that the only two that we've done together? No, Cadence. Cadence, yeah. yeah. That was a hard one to get you in. That was, yeah, you in. I was just like busy and not paying attention yeah. to it, but the numbers spoke for themselves. Yeah. There's a reason brands like my own company, Long Weekend, and Princess Polly use Tapcart. In-app conversion rates of around 12 to 14%. Shopify brands using Tapcart have sold well over $3.5 billion through their apps. You don't have to be a huge brand to have an app either. Just like it's never too soon to start building an email subscriber list, it's never too soon to start building a push subscriber list, an own marketing audience that will compound in value over time. With Tapcart, there's no coding required. There's a real-time sync with your Shopify store, which means that you can turn it into an app in hours and your inventory is always up to date automatically. The drag and drop software is much easier to maintain than you'd think. Start building today. Their team is super supportive and makes it really easy. And there's a great exclusive for our listeners. Get two months free at tapcart.com slash limited. Again, that's two months free at tapcart.com forward slash limited. All right. So a couple sentences on you. So yeah, obviously we met at Shop Talk. Actually, the funniest thing was I remember 
just walking around there and thinking like, wow, I don't know a lot of the people here. Yeah. And then I see you like there was a taco. It was tacos being catered over there, like inside. And I remember right outside, like under the awning, I remember talking to somebody and then over their shoulder, I saw you and I was like, oh shit, that's Moise Ali. And then uh, we like walk up, up to each other. And I was like, hey, you're Moise Ali. And you're like, you're the other brown guy. And he covers. <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah. That's hilarious. And I was like, oh, this guy's dope. But yeah, no, I think I, I've always enjoyed just like chatting with you and just shooting the shit because like, uh, as you can tell, you're very blunt. And so there's never, there's never a filter of like, oh, this has to sound good or it has to sound pretty. So yeah, I think this will be an exciting podcast for all, Me that, too. all those reasons. I bought a last crumb VIP membership. I don't you know did how that. much it cost. It was like a thousand dollars. Yeah. And I, I probably spent four thousand dollars. No, I didn't. Okay. I probably spent four thousand dollars because I send out so many gifts yeah. to make up for my bluntness where I'm like, yeah. I was blunt the other day. Here's a box of cookies to make up for it. That's amazing. And that's been, uh, people love it. They're, yeah. they're very forgiving when they get that box of cookies. That it's is such gift. a fascinating business to me because yeah. it's built so backwards. Like we were going to do a Valentine's Day promo with them or like help them set up uh, the digital side of their Valentine's Day campaign. And everything that we thought about from a standpoint of conversion or like, you know, getting the thing, they're just like, no, we want, they all, they want it completely backwards and it works so well for them. It does. It's like any, anything that they do, if another business applied, it just wouldn't work. But it's like their brand is so strong. Yeah. And um, they've got this crazy excited base of people ready to go that it just works for them. It's just such a good gift because it's hard to get if you're like yeah. not a VIP member. Right. Uh, the unboxing experience is amazing and it's expensive yeah. uh, and fun and unique. I think that's what makes it so special. Like I've certainly spent $5,000 with them this year yeah. uh, ba just giving out gifts. Like I look at my credit card statement, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money I'm spending on cookies that I'm not eating. But the unboxing, uh, they must spend $30 on their box. Like yeah, uh, the box is so nice. Box and shipping. Yeah, exactly. It also has to ship in two days. Yeah. You know, because of the temperature. Yeah, I think they ship it overnight actually. Yeah. Um, and just so we can explain it for other people who are listening and not familiar with the brand, it's yeah. basically a brand that does no digital advertising. They drop a box of cookies. I think it's 12 cookies for $140. If you're a VIP member, you get 12 of these boxes for $1,000 and they might have 24 cookies. I'm not sure. I've actually never gotten a box myself. I've never had it delivered to myself. And so it's a great gift. Do you think it can scale? Can businesses like this scale? Because once you remove the, this is really hard to get factor, does it just like disappear or how I think how do you it think can. It? So like, so I invested in the business at their last round. Wow, okay. And it was really, I was like, I don't know what the end game is here, but it is just such a fascinating business. It was more like, you know, I didn't go to college, so this is where I'm getting my learnings from. And so I thought the same thing. They just bought a massive commercial facility in yeah. LA to just crank out more and more cookies. I think the plan is eventually to have some type of evergreen cookie box that's always on. But then, you know, continue doing the drops every Tuesday. The The hard part about this business is like, you know, on one hand, they don't have to do any real marketing. So I don't think they've like, they've even tested if they know like paid marketing in the way that we think about marketing. Their stuff is so organic and earned media driven and influencer driven and waitlist driven. Does that die? Like, you know, I remember Recess, the brand, you know, Recess yeah, that the like- CBD drink. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For two months, 
they were the biggest thing in the direct to consumer community. Right. Like Matt cans everywhere. The guy, I think he was on the cover of Inc or like, you know, all over the media. And like once the CEO tweeted out, we've uh, have never spent a dollar in paid ads. Right. And I was like, I'm pretty sure your sales reflect uh, that you've never spent a dollar in paid ads. Like you should start spending a dollar in paid ads. I always wonder if brands can scale without that kind of stuff. Like Last Crumb is amazing. If you open it up, can you run paid ads? Are people going to be like, great, $140 for a box of cookies? It's not hard to get anymore. It's just a re like a regular, If it, it does it become a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue? I think it's similar to how like Mad Happy and Louis Vuitton spend their ad dollars, which is basically just like pushing the brand, the idea of being a part of that yeah. brand. You know, like Mad Happy pushes a lot of content of their celebrities wearing it or influencers going on trips dressed in all Mad Happy. Louis Vuitton does a lot of stuff like with Virgil Abloh or they'll kind of push these like uh, live event videos and it's just like being associated with that identity is what they're advertising. Yeah. And then once you're kind of sucked into that, it's like your intent just gets higher and higher. But, you know, Recess is an interesting example because I believe they did start running some paid stuff and it wasn't as successful. It's also just like the hardest of the hardest categories to run on paid ads. Like yeah. beverage is hard and yeah. then beverage with CBD and ingestible CBD is not really allowed. But yeah, it's it's tough. I know they came out with like a non-CBD version of their product, which I guess is just like juice. And that's what they advertise. But then they also have such a strong thesis in like, we need to be on brand with everything. And so like, if you go to their site, like it's not built to drive conversion. You know, I don't think their conversion rate is that great. Got it. But oh, yeah, uh, right. but last crumb is just, I mean, to me, it's so, I'm excited to see what happens, you know, whether it becomes like a hundred million dollar cookie brand yeah. or if it just like, you know, flops. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to be honest, I've uh, spent $5,000 on it. I wish that was uh, an investment. Like I'm like, I've sort of invested yeah, that's you guys because kind of I put, an I put in a decent right amount there. of money in there. Yeah. yeah. When you're investing in brands, how much, uh, like what check size do you write actually? So when I was doing Masala Capital stuff, it was anywhere from 50 to a hundred. Personally, the lowest I've done is like a thousand, and I think the most I've done is fifty. Gotcha. Um, but usually they're anywhere between like five to ten. Can you talk about the brand that you invested fifty in? Uh, I can't because it's okay. a it's a huge celebrity brand that launches later this year. Gotcha. But there's yeah there's a couple at at twenty five, and then I think majority of them are at ten. Got it. Yeah. Um, One or twenty five hundred is like if I really love the founder and want to be helpful to that person. But, you know, I'm not like a big believer in that business, but yeah. I just want to, you know, be there and be along for the ride. Then I'll put a thousand bucks in. But, you know, what's funny I always think about is like, so, I mean, you probably get the same, like just a bunch of emails like, hey, this is my product. I'm raising this amount of money. You know, I want to get you in as a strategic. So I'm like, all right, if I'm a strategic, like where's my advisory shares in this offer? Why is that not in the email coming in? And also, like, why do I have to put money in to then give you advice? Why not just give me advice? Why not offer me advisory shares and say, I think you'd be helpful. And we want to essentially pay you in advisory shares to just be able to call you, text you, and be be done at that. Yeah. Like, why do I have to go dip into my savings? Uh, yeah, I think you can do both. Like, yeah, I think yeah. You can do Most either of the time too. I do yeah, both. Yeah. yeah, I think you, I'm sorry. I think you can do either. I, I like, yeah. you can be an advisor to a business and never kick in a dollar of capital. Right. Or you can be like, I want to get. I'll kick in some cash and kick in, uh, get some advisory shares. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. A lot, like um, the, a lot of the pitches I get are so generic. 
When you're selling to customers through a direct-to-consumer site and with landing pages and ads, you need to be a salesman. And when you're selling, to, when you're pitching to investors, you need to be a salesman as well. And oh. like, you know, I get emails where people are like, I want to start the first wellness company in the United States. I think I might've mentioned this to you. And I'm just like, are you, where are you? Like, you know, th- this is, you're 50 years late to the game. Have you been to Target? Everything yeah. says wellness. Right. Everywhere you go. It's like the entire aisle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the aisle is like, you know, Target has selected 20 brands out of 5,000 that have pitched them each year to put in that aisle. I rarely will invest in a brand where I get cold emailed, although it has happened. Like I'll get a cold email and I'm like, this isn't really interesting. Yeah. But almost always- What turns you on from a cold email? Is it like you want to see their CAC, their numbers, how they plan to scale it? That gives me an erection right away. Like, um, but in, in reality, I think that, you know, if you're like, hey, here's growth- Here's my growth and numbers that are like meaningful. Like, you know, people yeah. will be like, I did a hundred thousand last four years and I'm like, I get yeah. it, but this isn't going to be the an hobby. investable business. Right. Yeah. Uh, so meaningful growth, you know, certainly a founder is working full time on the business. I love founders who have, uh, this is their second business and like their first one struggled. Cause I'm right. like, okay, you've know, you know what works and doesn't work, or at least you know what didn't work. So right. you're gonna, not going to make the same mistakes this time. And you know, a good product. Like, I think people don't value this enough. Like, I wouldn't invest in Mark Zuckerberg selling, you know, urine in a can, even though he's Mark Zuckerberg. But I would invest in a guy who like failed recently creating, you know, Snapchat before it didn't exist yeah. or something. Would like you that. invest in uh did you see Adam Newman just raised seventy million dollars? I did see that. Would you invest in that? I don't know what he uh raised seventy million dollars for. I don't think anybody knows okay, what gotcha. actually the product is. Yeah, okay. Supposedly like uh have you heard of like neutral or ecocart? Yeah. Yeah, I think I it's have. like that for crypto. I think. Got I didn't really it. look into it. Okay. But my first thought was like, oh, A16Z led it. They're probably just waiting for their markup and then they're out. Maybe. I don't know how, a, I, I think A16Z usually like uh, sits in businesses for a long time. And, you know, they were an investor in my brother's business. And I remember, oh, I've got this great story. So I was in San Francisco when my brother was raising money for a business called TinyCo. Yeah. He was probably like the fifth investment or something like that that uh, Andreessen Horowitz ever made. Right. Uh, Mark Andreessen sat on his board. And so he, they were pitching. And so Solomon was driving, like, you know, I was in San Francisco and Solomon's like, I'm pitching Andreessen Horowitz today, come with me. Yeah. So I got in the car, we, we took a zip car down there. It was classic Solomon Ali. We're 45 minutes late. Salman is like typing the, you know, pitch deck, like he's driving 150 miles an hour and typing uh, on his computer on the way down there and like driving with his thighs. And I'm like, this is classic Salman Ali. I know because that's exactly like, you know, I'd have to read him his biology textbook on the drive to high school yeah. because he's like, we have an exam today and I've not done, I've never read this book. That's so just start reading while we're uh, driving there. And so we get there and, um, you know, he starts the pitch and Mark Andreessen is like, who is, who are you? I'm like, I'm just visiting San Francisco. I'm this guy's brother. So don't listen to me. And so the entire pitch is in Times New Roman, all caps, size 20 font. And there's like, you know, 10 slides. And Mark is like, I really like the amount of, you know, design you effort you put into this pitch. And someone's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm busy. I'm like running a business. And uh, Mark was like, I found there's a correlation between how crappy the deck looks and how good the business is. Yeah. Like the crappier the deck, the better, like the founder is spending time on the right thing instead of making a great deck. Right. And, um, you know, Natives was also that way. When we were pitching, it was, you know, complete garbage. Yeah. Um, and- I mean, I feel like your brand design identity was also super scrappy. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, uh, it was a mix of two companies, right? That's right. It was a mix of Casper and Harry's. <laughs> yeah. And I met with Which the Harry's. Like going back to the site, it's like, it's so obvious. Yeah, it's so clear, right? Yeah, yeah. It's so, <laughs> you didn't so hide clear. it. I didn't hide it. But it was it so all. good. I in, mean, part, in part because I was like, we have no money. We have no designers. I'm going to spend 30 seconds on designing this site. And yeah. I built the first version of the site myself. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Uh, logo, you know what we're going to do is Harry's just typed out their name. Yeah. Why, why are other brands not just typing out their name? That yeah. seems really easy. And I met with a Harry's founder a couple weeks ago at Soho House here in New York. And I was like, you know, we, he's like, you know, you did such, he was like very uh, appreciative. You know, he said amazing things about Native and he's such a nice guy. And I was like, you know, embarrassed, but I was like, hey, you know, we stole your font. I you know, went to your website, looked at the font and decided to use the exact same one. And that was the, like, that is where the research came from. And he's like, yeah, you know, probably that looks like it did. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, he was very nice. He wasn't like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, like, yeah go for it. Um, and then we stole Casper's colors. Man. And I remember their blue was, I remember the hex color still, 00237E. Yeah. And I took that blue and put it all over native. And like, you know, now we've spent, you know, it's a $200 million brand and it's still using the exact same colors. And I'm like, Amazing. and the same font. I'm like, wow, that brand really worked. Yeah. That's like another reason I love talking to you is because you just realize you don't need all these fancy bells and whistles that like all these DTC news sites talk about. Like these fancy agencies charge you half a million dollars to build a brand you know, I think people try to buy a shortcut to building that $200 million brand when in reality they're just getting a PDF with a bunch of designs. Uh, and obviously they look beautiful and they look great, but you still have to go build the brand. Definitely. And look, you know, what do you think that agency is doing? They're going to Harry's and Casper and yeah. Allbirds and being like, okay, these are the colors that everyone's using. Exactly. Let's go mix those together and create a slightly different brand identity. Right. But if you look at like Red Antler brands, they're not dramatically different. Like they yeah. often look very similar to each other. Totally. And yeah, so I'm all for borrowing uh, from other guys. Borrowing yeah. is, uh, you know, I was going to say stealing, but I mean borrowing yeah. from other brands. And, you know, it's safe. I was like, look, we're going to be able to build 80% of the brand like, you know, on our way there and we'll see what happens. And right. so um, the first version of Native, the homepage did not have a single stick of Native deodorant because we didn't have any sticks in like lifestyle shots. Yeah. So it didn't have any, it didn't have a single bar of native. It just said native in text. Yeah. And there was and a photo of a really nice bathroom and that was it. Was the domain native COS? Yeah. Why COS? Uh, great question. Just a, the only one that was Correct. Cheap. Yeah. It was the only one that yeah. was nine ninety nine. And people were like, is COS stands for cosmetics or companies or what yeah. does it stand for? And I was like, I got no idea. Yeah. It was nine ninety nine, and it's still working. So it's fine. That's awesome. Uh, and then- we got a 3D designer to mock up what the sticks looked like. I was like, okay, this is our logo. This is what the component that we're using for native. Put our logo on top of this stick. We don't have any of these. Like, we don't have any photos of it. So yeah. he 3D rendered it and he did a brilliant job. So much so that when we sold the business, we'd still never taken a single photo of native deodorant. It was still all 3D renders that this guy had made. Wow. Like we'd have a rose coming out of stick of native deodorant and use that in email or on Instagram, yeah. 3D rendered. Everything that was done was 3D rendered. And he was a guy, he charged like $10 for a 3D image. And I was like, I used to tell my team, I was like, if that guy and I are on a boat and it's sinking and you can only save one of us, save him. Yeah. Because he is going to like, we need him more than we need me. Yeah. Anybody can run Facebook ads. This guy's 3D rendering images in a way that make our product look beautiful and a way that we cannot uh, replicate yeah. with actual photography. So just save him. <laughs> and uh, it was amazing. That's amazing. Let's talk about startups uh, and valuations. Okay. Um, that sounds good. 
What is what are you seeing actually? All right. Let's start. So there. so obviously I feel like we just came off this this bridge or short drive of like all these companies, software companies mainly being valued at 100 million. Yeah. Like companies right out the gate, pre-launch, maybe a couple beta customers, they're definitely not paying. All at 100 or some of them maybe over. Yeah. And a lot of those, I, I thought it was almost ridiculous that some of these were raising because I'm like, well, how are you going to raise your next round? Like you're kind of screwed if you don't, if you don't make it, you're screwed. So there was that. And then I still feel like now I'm seeing just a ton of even like pro, CPG brands uh, raising at insane valuations. You know, a company, I just saw a company that did 3 million in revenue since 2020 is raising at 35 million. And I'm just like, okay, so 35, you know, by the simplest of VC rules, if that exits at 350, I just don't see how that exits at 350. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be, have to, you're going to have to do a hundred million dollars in revenue. Yeah. And so you're going to have to raise a lot more, dilute yourself. It's going to be a higher valuation. You'll never right. get there. Yeah. And then, yeah, I don't know. I've been passing on a lot of stuff recently just because I'm like, uh, it's just overvalued. Yeah. There was one business, uh, which I think you're in too. Are you in Jambies? No, I'm not. So Jambies was one where I was like, you know, I saw their deck. I think it was, I jumped in at the five valuation, something like that. You know, at first I was, I was always been a fan of the product. Like, yeah. The first time I met these guys, I was like, oh, I love these guys, guys get it. Yeah. They, they're they really scrappy with how they go produce their stuff. And uh, they thought about like, okay, we're going to go produce in Mexico because it's uh, cheaper shipping. They're running their own Facebook ads. One of the guys is like a former GQ writer. So he had like so much press about Jambies. I just loved everything about the brand. But I was like, you guys should not be raising money. Like you're a cash flow positive business at this stage. You don't like, why do you need to go raise money? You should just keep the whole thing. Yeah. And then, you know, eight months later, I'm like just finding myself wearing pretty much just Jambies <laughs> pandemic. And I was like, all right, just take my money. Yeah. I love Jambies. It's a yeah. great brand. I love the guys who are running it. Yeah. Are they brothers? Uh, no, just no. two okay, friends. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, they're just like humble and they're like, we know what actually matters and what doesn't. Right. One of the scariest things to me is when founders early on, this is a classic first time founder mistake. They're like, our our customers love this product so much, they're going to share it with their friends and yeah. that's how we're going to grow this business. Like that is so classic first-time founder. I know because I made that mistake. I'm certain when I was a first-time founder, I was like, people love this. We're going to be huge because yeah. everyone loves us. Right. And you know, that's true for the first hundred, like even a native, the first hundred customers got us the next 200 customers. And those 200 customers got us the next 50 customers. And those 50 customers got us the next five. And that was it. Yeah. Like, you know, at some point that like concentric circle ends because your core group is going to be people who are, love your brand so much. And then it just starts dying down because people aren't as passionate about the category. Like, you know, right. there's some people who love pajamas. But most people are like, these are pajamas. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. live in- like, Also, you know, like, what? where do you talk about that? Yeah, exactly. You know? uh, so I think that, like, that's a classic first-time founder yeah. uh, mistake that I try and avoid. And, like, those guys never made that mistake. I really respect them. They have this great thing that I always talk about, which is they've got a Jambies for two people, like yeah. you and your significant other. Yeah. And I'm always like, I'm not sure how you use the bathroom in this. I think you got to get out of it. But it's <laughs> yeah. a really cute idea. Yeah, great idea. But, yeah, overall, I mean, I, I still think a lot of startups are overvalued. I think raising money is also kind of a vanity thing. Like there's a lot of businesses that probably don't need to go raise institutional funding. They could go 
Like I'm surprised more people just don't go to like a random rich person and they're like, hey, uh, let's quietly do this deal together versus yeah. like, I'm going to go get, you know, 65 angels and go get two top tier firms and then go get a whole press cycle out of this. But also like the people reading that press cycle are not your customers. Yeah. So it's a weird thing, but but yeah, I mean, most, I think most startups right now in this space are fairly overvalued and you know, they almost focus, like sometimes when I meet founders, they're just like, I'm like, so what do you do all day? And he's like, uh, well, you know, I fundraise the, for the business and the business has its own team. And I was like, okay, well, this is not something I want to be <laughs> yeah, yeah, throwing yeah. my money in if your job is just to fundraise. Yeah. Who's the guy running the business? I need to talk to that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that like, um, there's a place for that VC stuff. Like when we were selling, we didn't do this, but a lot of other businesses will launch a PR cycle before they go out to market to sell their business. Yeah. Because that way it gets other buyers interested. They're like, oh, I've heard yeah. of this brand because it's either too small that I haven't heard of it. Or this is a super relevant brand because it just got all this PR. Yeah. And so I think that like uh, a bunch of people do that kind of stuff. You know, I think you're right. The direct-to-consumer community has been destroyed from a valuation perspective. Like Rent the Runway falling 80%, Allbirds falling 80%, Hims falling, you know, probably 40%, uh, Honest 80%. Almost all of those businesses I just mentioned have raised more money than the enterprise value of their business. I mean, yeah. they've raised more money than their business is trading at today on the public market and like probably raise more, like raise more money than, you know, uh, it would take to buy that business today. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. And I think that if you're a direct to consumer business, it's really time to like batten down the hatches right now and sort of say, okay, what does it take to get 18? Like, you know, is this business, do I have enough cash to last 18 months? probably 18 months with a little bit of wiggle room to go fundraise more or find a home for this business. And I think a lot of people aren't doing that. Like, you know, you got to look at your team. You got to look at marketing spend. You got to look at, uh, you know, what is the growth of the business? Is there profitability on the horizon? All right. of those types of things that people are not looking at. And uh, it's going to behoove them to look at it. I probably saw two e-commerce failures in bankruptcy that were for auction or for sale yeah. between like 2019 and 2020. Yeah. And I've seen six in the last three weeks. Yeah. And, you know, businesses that were doing $100 million in revenue are now for sale for $6 million and still nobody wants to buy them. That's like wild. they've got $6 million in debt on the business. No one wants to buy them. You know, it's a real red herring of like, hey, the, the market is, there's going to be a lot more of these. I think we're in inning one because you rate, you know, you fundraise for your business. Yeah. You don't know what to do. Some of the businesses are too large to fail. Like Thrasio, people will continue throwing cash at that because they've acquired so many businesses. Like, I don't know if the value, like the valuations may come down. I think uh, it came down from like seven and a half to two and a half, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've also heard that it already came down. You're yeah. right. Uh, it's already come down. But like, um, you know, I think it's probably too big to fail and that they can continue to fundraise. The terms yeah. might get so bad that, you know, it doesn't make sense for the founders, but uh, somebody will take over that business. Yeah. I think for businesses that are, you know, in the $50 million range, I talked to an investment banker yesterday and she was like, I get calls from frantic founders three times a week now where they're like, I'm looking for a home for this business because wow. it's not going to last six months from now. Wow. And uh, you know who I'm talking about, the banker. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's really scary. That is crazy. Uh, and I think we're in inning one in the next six innings, we'll see a lot more of these. And a lot of them will go quietly because like, right. even the ones that I've heard of, you know, they're not publicly bankrupt. Like you right. know, they're not on the Wall Street Journal or anything, but they're there. Right. Uh, and that's scary. Is there any common theme among all these businesses that are like going out? Yeah. Like, are they a specific category or a type of customer or um, too low of AOB? Or? A lot of subscription businesses, now that you mentioned that, um, you know, all consumer brands, all direct consumer brands. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is also just founders who didn't make tough choices 
early enough. Like they were like, you know what? Things may turn around. And so uh, we will fix, like, you know, things are going to turn around in the next three months. So let's not cut marketing spend yet because then our revenue will fall off of a cliff. Let's not take a a hatchet to headcount, which is really hard to do and really sad. But like, you know, it's either you lay off 30% or 50% of the business, uh, 50% of the employees, or you lay off 100% when you go in bankruptcy. Right. And so I think like founders who didn't make that decision early enough, I remember talking to a subscription box business and they were like, you know, they get all of the product, they get all the cash from the consumers, they get all the product from the merchants, they ship out the product, then they pay the merchants. And so the cash flow cycle is really good. You've got cash from customers coming in, you've got free products coming in, you ship it out and then you pay the merchants. Yeah. So like, you know, you're getting cash 90 days before you have to pay it out. And, you know, they weren't thinking about it that way. They were like, we get, we use December cash to pay off November merchants. And I'm like, no, you should be using, that's not the way it works. You should be using November cash to pay off December merchants. Like, you know, your cash flow cycle is early, not late. And I think it's just founders who are like, like living on the edge. They're sort of like, hey, we're going to live on the edge and we're okay with it. And they've got a lot of risk tolerance. And that is scary as fuck. Yeah. Uh, Cause like, you know, I've talked with a bunch of them and they feel sad and I'm like, you know, that I understand why you feel sad. Like that's really hard. You put your, a lot of blood, sweat and tears into this business and it's tough that it failed. And you know, I would feel terrible too, but I'm also like the signs are here. Uh, right. Like, you know, the signs were there. Like you should have taken a hatchet to marketing spend six months ago. There was one I was looking at and they're like, you know, we're spending a million dollars a month on marketing now instead of 2 million. And I was like, you were going bankrupt and you were spending 2 million a month on marketing, cut that yeah. to zero. Yeah. Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Uh, you know, you really got to get in front of this and you got to have, you know, at least 12 months of runway in front of you. And if you don't, you got to like start thinking about alternatives right now, like, you know, team, finding a home, fundraising at a down round, all that kind of stuff. And I feel totally. like people aren't doing that enough. Yep. Okay. I think that's actually all the time we've got for- Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff that we can talk about next time. Yeah. And it looks like- on Twitter, we got, you know, another about 40 questions that we'll go through. Okay, that's awesome. I'm also excited to get, like, I, I think this is really fun, like, when we yeah. do it like this. Like, we drop a lot more bombs. Yeah, yeah, than we're just going back and forth. Yeah, because we both, like, understand the space, and so we right. don't have to explain anything to each other. I'm excited to get, like, um, some founders of businesses that have worked and have not worked to yeah. be like, hey, this is what happened in my business. Exactly. Um, and have fundraised. Like all the fun, uh, investors in the direct consumer seem to have disappeared. Well, at first they said no more brands were doing e-commerce SaaS. Yeah, and then they stopped doing that, and then they said we're going Web three, and yeah. then they stopped doing that. And I don't know what fad these VCs are going to hop on next. I was last night I was at this VC event, and uh, somebody was like, you know, well, what's your secret to like? knowing which businesses to invest in. And I was like, absolutely don't follow VCs because they don't know anything. Most of them have never seen anything like on the day-to-day side of this business and they wouldn't know how to interpret it. They wouldn't know how to read it. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. Like I remember there was a partner at some big VC firm who tweeted out and he said, uh, Away Luggage is an amazing brand. Away Travel is an amazing brand because they uh, live in an, uh, and they have a differentiated product as opposed to Casper Mattress. Right. And I remember being like, are you a fucking idiot? (laughs) These people are selling luggage. Have you never seen luggage before? Yeah. Like I can name three brands off the top of my head that sell luggage. Yeah. And I buy this once every, you know, 10 years. Right. You must be, been, and he's like, you know, I, I replied to that on Twitter. I was like, look, avoid VCs. Look at how stupid they are. And he was like <laughs> yeah. very upset at me. And I was like, this was a stupid thing to say. And like, yeah. you're supposed to come from a place of seeing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, avoid VCs is a good, yeah, you have to be an independent thinker. A hundred percent. Yeah. 
All right, cool. Awesome. Super well, excited. We'll wrap Thanks. this and uh, yeah, we'll do this again soon. I think our next one, we're going to have a founder on. And so we'll continue this list after. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And make sure to subscribe on any platform you listen to podcasts on so you don't miss the next one. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on.